just a content warning. This sermon acknowledges the existence of a basketball team at a university in Durham, North Carolina. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, Susan's confession this week um, really has its heart in a question of identity. Um, who are we? What makes us up? Um, what is the stuff of our life? What's the center of who we are? I thought about that this week when I was on Duke University's campus. There was an important basketball game this week. Um, but my thinking was about my uh, my teacher, Stanley Hauerwas. And in his ethics class, he has this very famous lecture that's called the fascism of college basketball. I decided not to disturb my 20-year-old notes, um, but I did find an interview he gave about this lecture. And he tells the interviewer this, um, community for community's sake is not good. <laughs> Stanley explains this problem that he sees at Duke and other campuses with lighter shades of blue, perhaps, you get everyone in a room and everyone's excited about the same thing and you think that you've overcome loneliness. Everyone in Cameron Indoor Stadium is jumping up and down, painted blue, and you think, I finally belong. Hauerwas explains the danger this way. You take alienated, upper-middle-class kids who are extremely unsure of who they are, and suddenly they are Duke basketball. I call it Duke basketball fascism because fascism has a deep commitment to turn the modern nation-state into a community. He goes on to say, the state to become the primary source of identity uses loose talk about community. And I suspect there's a lot of community identities at Duke and UNC in our neighborhoods and our social groups. Wellness communities want to sell you essential oils. Parents group want your allegiance to their products. The United States would like you to pledge allegiance and if necessary to die for it. Your workplace calls you a family so they can get more production out of you. Christian nationalism forms of community of mistrust and fear of others. This is a story that is as old as time. We tell stories that draw people together, that form identities out of diversity to make meaning out of this life. People in power know you have to do this to get things done. It's an incredibly powerful practice. Our family got to witness the power of this practice in Northern Ireland on July 11th, the day of the celebration of Battle of the Boyne. This is the day when the Protestant King William defeated the Catholic King James II, and it assured the ascendancy of Protestantism in Ireland. Now, 11th Night doesn't explore the complexities of identity of colonialism. 
There were no exhibits and lectures on power and governance. Our experience of the 11th night is community. People wear orange. They sing songs about doing not very nice things to Catholics. They drink a lot and they set things on fire. <laughs> Which is today, it's to say it's a day to foster identity, to create a narrative about all sorts of Protestants fitting into one category together. Y'all, the Battle of the Boyne happened in 1690. 1690. But this watershed moment becomes a point to shore up a people, a people whose identity is so focused that the city of Belfast is divided by walls to keep the conflict between loyalists and Republicans at bay to this day. Paul sends a letter to the church at Rome and it's a church with an identity crisis. There are a lot of different people here in the capital city, Jews and Gentiles, Roman citizens, enslaved people, women, men, aristocrats, laborers, but they all live in a world where there is an active attempt to form a heroic national identity out of diverse people. Rome has been conquering everything in sight. And in order to have power and with, especially with this group of people, the Greeks, they need a new story. And so they made one up. This story is called the Aeneid. And its protagonist is Aeneas. Aeneas is a wandering hero who hears the voice of a god and births a new and glorious nation. Does that sound familiar? In this epic, Virgil crafts a story that will be convincing and acceptable to Romans and Greeks, a story that will bring them together into a single, powerful, unified identity. And this propaganda story was canonized everywhere in Rome, in plays and epic readings. It would have been everywhere. It didn't include all people, but it provided a base for the people who mattered. It provided a story for the Julio-Claudian dynasty, and it told everybody else their hierarchy, place in the hierarchy of this world. And that story eventually led way to a cult of emperors who were gods. The Aeneid is a story of reconciliation, reconciliation that comes through war and conquering where men become gods. There's no doubt that Paul knows the temptation of the people in Rome to follow after this story. So he reminds them of something. They also have a story. They also have an ancestor. This is an ancestor who was called from his home and people who also hears the voice of God was also the father of a great nation. This ancestor of the Roman church is Abraham. As Susan shared with us, our ancestors have a lot to do with our identity. It doesn't matter your bloodline, your nationality, or your place in the social hierarchy, Paul says to the church at Rome. Your whole life rests in grace. We all get into this beloved community through Jesus. 
Our identity comes from this utter dependence on a God who created us in love. It's a story that binds us together, and it's not one of national heroism. It's a story of a people who God said yes to. Um, last week during our first Sunday of Lent, we brought up this question about the truth of ourselves, how we've patterned ourselves in this lie, this lie that's deep in our bones, this lie grafted into our scripture through words from a snake in a garden who told us that being like God is hoarding and violence and domination and extraction. extraction. And so it's no surprise that this is exactly the same kind of God, the same kind of story tempting the Romans that wants to form them into a community. And friends, that's the same story that draws on us today. We hear this story all the time about our identity, that we are what we do, we are what we make, we are what we earn, we are where we work. We need to be relevant. And we expect the same from others, the same exacting and exhausting standard we set for ourselves. And when we fail, there's only recrimination and blame to fall back on. And so Paul says, what if that's not the place of your identity? What if our identity isn't a story about heroics or world changing? What if the only way to tell each other apart is that we forgive each other? We're going to run up against all sorts of stories in our lives. We might just find ourselves where Susan did in a place to see that we haven't believed the true story, the one that actually requires no wages earned. We believe a lot of stories about each other, about us. But if we listen carefully to one another, to scripture, to the God who is here among us, we might find ourselves also moving towards forgiveness moving towards a recognition that our lives are a gift, that these lives are fragile and so deeply loved by a God who holds us forever. Amen.